So welcome to this week's Investor Podcast. This is Gavin Ralston and with me is Azad Zangana, our Senior Economist. It's often said that politics are speeding up, but the last five days have been a time when economics and markets have speeded up too. Just in the last week, we've had a widely anticipated interest rate cut from the Federal Reserve. This was then followed the next day by a tweet from President Trump in which he promised to raise tariffs to 10% on a further $300 billion of Chinese goods. In Europe, uh, same day, there was preliminary second quarter GDP data, which was pretty much everywhere weaker than expected. At the same time in the UK, a no-deal Brexit uh, on October the 31st seems to become government policy, which has caused sterling to drop to its lowest level since 2016. Then the Chinese authorities responded to uh, US uh, policy and retaliated by asking their state-owned enterprises not to buy agricultural imports from the US and by allowing their currency to drop to the lower end of its band, taking it below seven to the dollar for the first time in many years. On top of that, we had uh, what's usually a big event in itself, which is the monthly US employment data uh, for July. The data itself was steady, although wage gains picked up, which is good news for the US consumer. Perhaps reflecting the fact that we're in the uh, middle of the holiday season in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, the market response to these events has been dramatic, with sharp falls in equities. Uh, the S&P 500, which reached its all-time high as recently as July the 26th, is down 6% with similar falls in other European and Asian markets. The moves have been even more spectacular in bond markets. So the US 10-year now trades at 175 and the German 10-year at minus 51 basis points. In fact, the entire German yield curve out to 30 years now trades on negative yields. And in the US, the UK, Japan and Germany, 10-year yields are now below short-term policy rates, the famous inverted yield curve. And as is often the case in periods of high uncertainty, even when the problems start in the US, the dollar has strengthened. So as I said, let's go back to uh, the, the beginning of the last week with the, the Federal Reserve. Uh, they made a statement uh, which accompanied the interest rate cup, which sounded fairly neutral, but many market participants thought was quite hawkish. What, what's your take on what they were saying? Yes, I agree. I think it, it's, it was reasonably neutral. I thought um, Chairman Powell was... Um, uh, very much open to further easing if the data continues to deteriorate. And he also talked about uh, a change in the medium-term assumptions around the natural rate of unemployment uh, and trend growth uh, and so on. But the, the markets seem to take this as a uh, quite a cautious message um, in that uh, they, they certainly weren't promising further rate cuts, um, but uh, also weren't hinting at the need for more rate cuts. And I think that was uh, seen as, as, as hawkish, obviously led to uh, uh, the US Treasury yields picking up at least 10 basis points on the day itself. Uh, equity markets also sold off a little bit, but uh, the move was more dramatic in, in the Treasury market and in the dollar as well. And the market now thinks, uh, following the events of the last week, that there's virtually 100% certainty of another cut in September. Is is that really the way the Fed thinks? I mean, will, will they take into account the turmoil in markets? 
They will certainly respond uh, to the movements in markets and also, of course, the, the change in trade policy that you mentioned uh, earlier. They have started to factor in the impact from weaker trade onto the manufacturing sector and potentially the risk of that weakness spreading to other parts of the economy, either through layoffs or pay cuts to the household sector or through uh, less business being given to the service sector, which, of course, has its own people that it employs. So the, um, the concern is that that risk spreads. And, of course, we've had an escalation now, but it hasn't obviously happened yet, but uh, if uh, there isn't a deal done in the next few weeks, then there will be an increase in tariffs on Chinese imports. And I guess the big question is then, well, could it rise further from here? Well, let's focus on the the breakdown in in the trade negotiations between the U.S. and China. You mentioned when we were talking earlier that you are looking at all your forecasts now in the light of this quite abrupt change in the environment. Can you give us a an early indication of what the thinking might be? Well, fortunately, we were we were in the process of running the the forecast update uh, anyway, so it's uh, fortuitous in, in that respect. But um, we had previously expected a trade deal to be done by the end of this year. The thinking behind that was um, China obviously has seen a negative impact from uh, the trade war, and it was in their interest to try to lift the economy. Um, And at the same time, in the run-up to a presidential election next year, uh, Donald Trump could do with a a bit of a win on the trade front. Um, That is now looking less likely. And in fact, we would say as a team that there's now a greater chance that the uh, the 10% announced on the, on the final $300 billion uh, worth of imports from China, there's, there's, a, there's a, probably a, a greater chance of that rising up to 25% rather than us reaching a trade deal by the end of this year. Um, so we're starting to think about changing the direction of um, the political risk, if you like, within the uh, forecast. And, and naturally, that will mean downgrades to world trade and world growth uh, as a result, and also potentially some higher inflation uh, in the US and the margin. But if if you believe what the bond market is telling us, yields as low as 175 in the US, as I mentioned, it looks like there's going to be a recession or the market thinks there'll be a recession in the US next year. Is that? Do you think that's likely to play a part in your forecast? Uh, we're certainly thinking about it very carefully. Um, we're not convinced that the impact is large enough for the US to go into recession. But there are other regions of the world that are not growing particularly strongly. I mean, we mentioned Europe, and I'm sure we'll come on to that in a minute. Um, but certainly Europe looks vulnerable. Japan looks very vulnerable to a recession uh, in the next uh, year or so. Um, and so the, these are part of the, the reasoning, I think, for the bond market's pricing, that the risks are now clearly skewed to the downside. And let's stay with the trade dispute for a moment. How, how aggressive do you think the Chinese authorities will be in countering US moves? And we saw the, the currency move on Monday. They've actually, this is now Tuesday morning, said that the current, they won't let the currency drop any further. But are, are, they, are they going to lose patience with the US now? I think the, the move, obviously, to uh, the push the uh, yuan beyond seven against the dollar was... was highly symbolic. And, and obviously, the reaction to that move, I think, uh, tells you how important uh, uh, 
the the depreciation wars for for both sides uh, in in as part of the negotiation. Um, I mean, let's be clear. Compared to uh, August 2015, when uh, China let the currency go by about three percent, really caused panic at the end of August mm. that year. Um, this is a much smaller depreciation, much more controlled uh, as well, well within the daily fluctuation allowed uh, as part of the system. Remember back in 2015, we had no idea how uh, China ran its currency or what it was targeting. Now we have a much better idea and the movement is much smaller. Um, It doesn't look like there's been uh, pressure on the currency domestically in terms of outflows of capital. So it does suggest that this has been a, a, a political calculation in, in letting the currency slip on the day. Um, we, we, I think we expect certainly more depreciation uh, in the coming months, given our view that things will probably escalate uh, from here. Um, but uh, for now, we don't think it's going to be an uncontrolled uh, depreciation. Necessarily. And I guess one lesson of 2015 is that the Chinese won't do, any, won't do anything that will encourage uncontrolled capital outflows from China. Yes, I mean, 2015 was very much in response to the very high capital outflows that were happening at the time. And they've managed to clamp down on that quite significantly since then. No, this time, it feels much more like a managed uh, depreciation. I mean, there's there's been downward pressure on the currency anyway, uh, for a time. Um, but they, they clearly allowed it to slip in a, in a very symbolic way. And this all sounds like a pretty negative environment for other Asian economies caught up in the slipstream, as it were. Korea, Japan, Singapore. It's negative for any economy that competes with China. Um, It's potentially also negative if you're uh, working with China, if you're feeding into the Chinese economy. Um, I mean, to to explain that point a little bit more, if... um, the move by China now leads to a further escalation in tariffs, then clearly there's going to be another hit to demand from the US for Chinese goods. So if you are Samsung and you're making uh, microchips or screens for various devices that you export, that the China exports to the US, then there's going to be a knock-on impact onto the demand for those goods uh, and some services, of course, that, that feed that uh, relationship. But the the general depreciation, the big fear of the depreciation from uh, markets is that it's very deflationary for the rest of the world. Obviously, China has become one of the biggest exporters around the world, and and that would directly feed into lower inflation elsewhere. And it will take time for global companies to adjust their supply chains to move production away from China to economies not affected by the tariff war. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the, the key focus will be uh, for US companies, because they're the ones obviously most impacted at this stage. There's no hint that Europe is about to join the trade war against China at this point. But I, I, I suggest that the big risk over the next year is that China takes the excess goods that it can't sell anymore to the US and decides to dump them onto the European market. There is precedence of this happening in the past. So uh, that's something the Europeans will have to be mindful of. And if it does happen, then there could be then cause for Europe to start applying tariffs tariffs on China. But at the moment, it's, there's no signs of that happening. And last thing on China, we've seen going on quite dramatically protests in Hong Kong. Uh, 
Are there economic implications? I mean, markets have obviously responded very negatively, but is is there a bigger issue here that's going to be of concern? Yeah, I mean, the business surveys for Hong Kong have uh, fallen very sharply. They're now at the lowest levels since the uh, global financial crisis, which really tells you the amount of disruption that's happened uh, out there. I mean, the, some of the protests, have, of course, have become very violent, especially in recent days. Um, more and more companies are quietly talking about leaving Hong Kong and uh, setting up their headquarters uh, in Singapore and maybe even in mainland China as well, where politically they can uh, do that. Of course, in Singapore, you're not allowed to protest. So, you know, there are some downsides, I guess, for some people uh, in that move. Uh, But nevertheless, it's clearly... Uh, for for companies, you know, really thinking about taking these steps tells you the degree of the disruption that's happening right now in Hong Kong. Let's switch focus to Europe and start with the UK. So the probability of the UK leaving without any sort of deal uh, on October the 31st has risen. Um, Many people take comfort in the decline in sterling as an offset against the deflationary consequences of leaving uh, the European Union. But you published a paper last week which rather poo-pooed that idea. Can you just give us a a quick summary of of what you were arguing? Yes, of course. The the sort of the traditional thinking is that as your uh, currency depreciates, your exports become more competitive, you therefore export greater volumes and that boosts your GDP growth. Of course, for the import side, you get the higher import inflation and that reduces the amount you want to import. So you, in theory, should get a net uh, benefit from a uh, depreciation in the currency. The problem for the UK is that we have a very highly concentrated export base and many of these large multinational companies don't export uh, what we call homogenous goods like widgets or uh, small items that are easily replicated elsewhere. They have strong patents and intellectual property uh, protecting them from competition. And as a result, they have the ability to sell their goods and services, I should mention, overseas at a price that they choose to sell at. So when the pound then uh, depreciates, what tends to happen is these companies, they keep their prices unchanged overseas and very simply, they become more profitable. So anybody who has looked at the impact of the fall in the pound in recent years on the FTSE 100 will obviously tell you that because a high amount of earners come from overseas, it doesn't really impact the market in in the way that other countries would feel it. The uh, income effect is is, is quite substantial uh, there. Um, So for that reason, you don't get an increase in exports. You just simply have a more profitable uh, company. Now, in the very long term, you will eventually uh, become competitive enough so that you can uh, put more companies and people in the export side of the economy. But that would probably require a much bigger depreciation than we've had already. Um, you know, the average worker in the UK is still more expensive than the average worker across Southern Europe, for example. So it's not competitive yet uh, to, to uh, be able to move more into some of these industries. Uh, and, and, so what, I was just going to move on to the rest of Europe. What does what a disorderly departure by the UK from the EU in three months' time due to growth in Europe? It will be disruptive. It will be disruptive because the UK economy will probably go into recession. Um, And, of course, any exports to the UK could be impacted, although we don't really know 
what a no-deal Brexit means in reality. You know, in theory, we think there's going to be disruption to trade, so exports are going to be hit. In reality, you know, the UK government has said, well, we won't put up any borders, so we don't expect any uh, any problems. Um, I think there will be a will be somewhere between where we are today and where this theoretical uh, sort of Armageddon scenario is going to be. I, I suspect we're going to be in a worse place than we are today, but not quite as bad as as uh, some of the uh, the the more doom and gloom sort of scenarios I think it'll be. Then, if we look at the eurozone more broadly, so weaker mercury economic data for the second quarter than markets expected. Uh, a lot of pressure now in fiscal policy to take over where monetary policy may have come to the end of what it can do. Uh, what, what's the, where is the light at the end of the tunnel for European growth? I'm not sure there's a very bright light at the end of that tunnel, so I wouldn't uh, uh, become too excited. Um, the data that's been coming out still shows that the domestic side of the economy looks fine. Uh, it's growing at uh, roughly above trend. Unemployment is still falling. Wage growth is still accelerating. If you only focused on the domestic side of the economy, I don't think there'd be any concerns uh, from investors at all. The problem is that Europe is a highly dependent uh, region on trade, and trade is really what's been hit uh, in in recent quarters. And you can see that because the, the economies that trade the least have actually done the best recently. So we haven't had confirmation yet, but Germany probably contracted in the second quarter. And the economies uh, that trade the least would be economies like Spain? Spain, France, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're holding up uh, much better mm -hmm. at this point uh, in time. Um, so if they're, I mean, this is, the, I guess, the concern that uh, we mentioned earlier, that if the uh, trade war between the US and China gets worse from here, then you really can't see much upside to uh, European manufacturing turning around anytime soon. Uh, so you really do have to keep focusing on the domestic economy. The risk is that when, uh, you know, as as the manufacturing sector continues to worsen, could we start seeing jobs being lost? Could we start seeing the household sector in aggregate uh, losing some of its purchasing power? If that does happen, then that can feed into the, the domestic economy that, you know, we've been happy with so far. But it sounds overall as if what you're saying is that the risks to European growth are greater at this point than the risks to US growth in 2020, at least. The US is starting from a higher base, so that's helpful for them. Uh, they will certainly take a hit from the trade war, but we don't think it's, it's probably going to be big enough to cause a recession. But with Europe growing at around only 1% year on year right now, uh, it's closer to recession than, than the US. Also, uh, you have to think about the policies that are available. So you mentioned monetary policy largely coming to an end in, in, in Europe. But that's not the case in the US. We we have you know interest rates still above 2%, potentially quantitative easing coming back on. Um, the US 10-year Treasury yields at 175, that's much higher than the negative yields we, we have in Europe. So there's great, much greater scope for monetary easing in, in the US than there is in Europe. Um, in Europe, fiscal policy could certainly be activated. And I'd argue there's more scope or more space for that to be utilized in Europe than in the US. But the European mentality is not one that supports 
big fiscal programs that will uh, boost growth. Except in Italy, which is the country probably least able to afford it. Absolutely. Well, in Italy, I think it's it's a much more uh, uh, difficult situation uh, where the domestic economy is still struggling uh, compared to er everywhere else, really. We're pretty much out of time for this week. Uh, thank you very much, Azad. Probably fair to say that the economics team are sounding a more negative note, uh, less obvious resolution to the trade war than we thought up to now, and becoming a bit more pessimistic on the growth outlook uh, globally in the next 12 months or so. We've talked a lot today about the impact of geopolitics on markets. I just draw attention ahead of time to a paper that Keith is going to publish at the beginning of September, which talks about how to measure the impact of geopolitics on market moves. So that's something to look forward to at the end of the summer. But thank you again, Azad, and thank you all very much for listening. <laughs>